Vote for Pedro. Vote for Pedro. Vote for Pedro. Vote for Pedro. We've got some problems, and just about everyone agrees about what they are. There's too much money floating around in electoral politics. Money buys influence. There's way too much divisiveness. One of the best ways to get elected is to demonize your opponent and depress their turnout. Primaries reward people who are on the extreme edges because they're the ones who can get a few voters to show up. Many people are alienated from the electoral process because they're disgusted by how the whole thing turns out. And finally, we're in the middle of a pandemic, and that's going to change the way people even show up to vote if they've decided that they want to. What if there was one thing we could do that would fix all of these problems? One thing that just about everybody can get behind. Hey, it's Seth. And this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about elections and how they work. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. If you want to learn to ride a bicycle, don't watch a video, don't read a book. Hey, it's Seth, and I'm here to talk about the Akimbo workshops. These are interactive, real-time, online workshops that work. And we're devoting 2020 to finding one that matches where you need to go. If you're ready to level up, I hope you'll check out akimbo.com to find out about our proven, effective workshops. It's nothing against you, Tracy. I mean, you're the best. Uh, I I just thought... uh... Okay. You're on, Mr. Popular. You might think it upset me that Paul Metzler had decided to run against me, but nothing could be further from the truth. He was no competition for me. It was like apples and oranges. I had to work a little harder, that's all. You see, I believe in the voters. They understand that elections aren't just popularity contests. They know this country was built by people just like me who work very hard and don't have everything handed to them on a silver spoon. For several years, we've been talking about systems. We've been talking about the way we see or don't see systems. But the system of put your head down on the desk and raise your hand when we're voting for our third grade student council rep is a system that's been around for a really long time. Voting is super low tech. In the old days, you walked in your local parish to wherever the vote was being held. You filled out a simple piece of paper. Your neighbors saw you. You dropped it into a box. Maybe they dipped your finger into some paint so that you wouldn't vote twice. And that was how an election worked. Well, we've changed the technology of just about everything we do in how we travel, in how we connect, in how we engage with one another. But mostly, we're still doing elections exactly the same way. There are a whole bunch of things pushing the status quo to stay the way that it is. But now, there's a system change at foot because the pandemic has made it so that it's not as easy as it might have been to get everyone to come out in 2020 and vote. So in this moment, we have some choices to make. Here we go. First off, which I'm only going to talk about for a second, is the idea of the secret ballot. We don't have secret ballots in Congress. We don't have secret ballots on the Supreme Court. 
secret ballots for people voting in elections. Well, it seems to make some sense because otherwise people could get coerced. People could sell their vote. But in practice, it seems to me that if we look at the results precinct by precinct, secret ballots aren't giving people the freedom to actually vote their conscience. Leaving that aside for a minute, I think it's possible to maintain the secret ballot and still be able to use so many of the advantages that technology offers us. And aside about voter fraud, there are two kinds of voter fraud to be worried about. One kind is an individual selling their vote, giving their vote away, having their vote taken from them by a neighbor or someone invading their mailbox. This sort of voter fraud is really, really rare, mostly because it's incredibly difficult to do. The kind of voter fraud we need to worry about is one that people who are up in arms about online voting and voting by mail seem to ignore. And it is the wholesale systemic voter fraud that comes from gaming electronic voting machines, that comes from gerrymandering to lock in results ahead of time. The fact that we don't have an audit trail for many of the electronic voting machines that have been put in place in the last 20 years around the United States and the world is just a crying shame. It's outrageous. It's not difficult to build systems that will give people more peace of mind than what we have now. Security expert Bruce Schneier has pointed out that electronic voting systems are really rife with potential fraud, that it's super difficult to audit them. Certainly, we need open source software so that systemic backdoor attacks won't steal the will of the people. But more than that, we need peace of mind, people knowing that what they did is what came through on the other end. We need an audit trail. Well, one of the ways we're going to get that is by using the magical tools that the internet has given us. The ability to do your vote and then see that your vote got recorded the way you wanted it to, and then be able to see, using a simple hash table, that when we publish the results of the election, your vote is right there the way the system said it was. There are ways to do this while maintaining the secret ballot. Another thing that we want in elections is for everyone to be able to vote. Unfortunately, it's been a long time since that was true. If you're in a nursing home, if you live way out of town and don't have access to transport, the myth has been that anybody who wants to walk down to the precinct and vote can, but in practice, 10 or 15% of the people have been disenfranchised for a long time. Vote by mail goes a long way to help with that problem because at least for now, just about everyone in the world has access to the postal service. But back to the core shift that will change everything. It's called rank choice voting. Ranked choice voting is almost impossible to do with pen and paper because there's just too many clerical steps you have to take. How does it work? When you vote, and there is no primary, there's just one election. When you vote, there's a list of all the people who are candidates, and you rank them. First choice, second choice, third choice, fourth choice, as many choices as you want. You can stop at any time. And then they tabulate the votes. The person who is in first place, if they have more than 50% of the vote, they win, 
the election is over. Now, it's worth noting that in many, many elections in our country, the winner does not have 50%. But in a traditional election, what we do in that case is they win anyway, leaving out all the people who voted for someone else. If you don't have 50%, then what we do is take second place votes. Who had a second choice? And we add that to the total. So if first choice plus second choice puts you over 50%, then you win. And then third choice, fourth choice, fifth choice. So the best way to win a ranked choice election is to be the first choice of a lot of people. The second best way to do it is to be the first choice of some people and the second choice of a bunch of other people. What will end up happening? Well, we don't have to guess. We've seen it happen in states all around this country. What happens is that the person who gets elected is a palatable choice to more of the electorate. This leads to some fascinating side effects. The first one is this. It doesn't pay to be a jerk. If you're going to be a jerk, if you're going to denigrate all the other candidates, then you're not going to get very many second choices. Because all the people who had someone else as their first choice will not rank you as their second choice. So as a result, comity and accommodation for other points of view becomes more common because you want to appeal to a larger number of people. That's sort of the point of mass democracy. Number two is in a primary where very few people show up and vote, the best strategy is to be a radical, to be an outlier, all the way to the right, all the way to the left, all the way somewhere, because the true believers will show up and vote for you. And if you win the primary, particularly in a gerrymandered district where you won't have a lot of competition from the other party, you win. And what this has done over the last 30 or 40 years, not my opinion, easy to show, is that it has divided every single one of the districts that could be divided because it's a good way to get elected. But if we use ranked choice voting, that doesn't happen anymore. In ranked choice voting, there's an incentive to appeal to a larger number of people. Again, sort of the point of having a democracy in the first place. And so what we end up with is a movement to the center. What we end up with by canceling the primary is better turnout than if we had multiple elections. Next, an aside about multiple elections. Once we start doing elections in a way that's digital, in a way that's reliable, in a way that's sort of fun, we don't have to have just one. We could choose, for example, to have voting day not be one day, but 30 days. We could choose, if we wanted to, to have the results of each day announced to encourage people to start voting if the person they are hoping will win isn't winning. Suddenly, voter regret starts to diminish because if something is happening that you weren't hoping would happen, you have an even better incentive to show up and vote. We could test the idea that you could vote every day for a month, over and over and over again. And as the voting continues and we winnow away the outliers, we end up with the candidate that appeals to the largest number of people. So back to this idea of electronic voting. One of the things that we're concerned about is fraud, and we need to build a system that gives people peace of mind 
an audit trail, a way of believing that their vote actually got counted. I alluded to that earlier. Serial numbers and things like serial numbers, being able to look up what the system knows about the vote you made goes a long way to creating that dynamic. Number two, we need to make sure that the digitally disenfranchised aren't also electorally disenfranchised, which means that we can use the money we're saving by shifting to an electronic voting system to create better outreach on paper, in person, door to door, whatever we need to, to get to the people who don't have access to a smartphone. Number three, there's also been work done on using ATM machines as a secure way to figure out if a vote was cast properly. Of course, ATM machines are super secure. If they weren't, they'd lose billions of dollars in a weekend. Using that system, particularly in urban centers where there's ATMs in lots of places, could create another way to engage people in this process. Sometimes it's the specifics that help us understand what's on offer. So if you want specifics, here we go. It's a first draft. I am sure people can improve it, test it, and make it better. We begin by this. We already know the name and address of every person who's registered to vote. We mail them all a letter, and it includes many options. Among them, you can use a smartphone. You can use a friend's smartphone. You can use a laptop. You can use a computer at the public library. And if none of those are appropriate for you, let us know, and we will either set it up so you can do it by phone, or we will mail you some paperwork. Included in the letter is the URL of a distributed network of sites, so none of them can be taken down. They're all connected by an API, as well as a login and a password. You can change the password so you don't forget it. Now, on to the election itself. There's a primary for each party, because in the United States, anyway, parties are dominant. Each primary works just like it used to, except for the fact that it's going to lead to not one, but three winners. Number two, voting is open in the primary and in the general election for 30 days. You can vote any time during that 30-day period. If you change your mind, you can go back, look at how you voted, and change it. In fact, you can do that over and over again, every single day for a month. Number three, let's get rid of polling. Instead of polls that don't make any sense and are imprecise, perhaps what we do is we reveal the results of the month-long polling on a regular basis. If you're not happy with the way it's going, you can go back and change your vote. As I said, there are three nominees for each party, so there are six people running in the final runoff. You get to rank your favorites, all six, in any order that you wish. You don't have to vote for more than one, but you can, and we use the ranking to determine the winner. The end result of all of this would be the following. One, more people will be able to vote. Two, people will not have regrets about long lines, emergencies at the last minute, lost absentee ballots, and all the other things that break when voting is only open for one day. Next, because the voting takes place over a period of time, people have the ability to look even more closely after they voted and change their mind. And finally, there's 
great confidence because the audit trail is super clear. You can call up how you voted. There it is on the screen. And there is lots of ways to provide double-blind auditing so that people can find out, in fact, if the votes did all roll up into one given total. That's my take on it. I'm sure someone else can do even better. What doesn't make sense is to have the hodgepodge that we've got that's inefficient, expensive, filled with fraught uncertainty, and most of all, easily blamed after the election is over. We need a blameless way going forward, and technology has opened the door to make that easier than ever. What I believe we have to do is think hard about the fact that the people who are trying to maintain the status quo of the system aren't doing it because they love the existing system. They're doing it because they're afraid to lead, afraid to create a butterfly ballot, afraid to create something that doesn't work very well. The answer is not to make stuff up in November, a week before the election. The answer is not to get hamstrung by long-term old-fashioned rules that were written long before we had this technology available to us. I think the answer is to start now and to do it early and often, over and over again, to build mediocre stuff and then make it better. Because the stakes are really high. Not just the stakes in who wins, but the stakes about how we feel about the process. Because disenfranchising people might be a good short-term way for somebody to win the thing they need to win right now. But it's pretty clear that in the long run, it doesn't get us to where we need to go. The people in the system, the ones who are dependent on our shared narrative. And that narrative is, we picked it, we will live with it. And what we have to figure out how to do is change the system itself, just the edge of it, so that the repercussions of those changes ripple through all the stuff we don't like, and we end up back to where we need to be, which is with a system that feels responsive, a system, thanks to ranked choice voting, where you are more likely than ever, even if your first choice doesn't win, to feel like you were heard. Because if you feel like you were heard, you're much more likely to be accepting of what happens next. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. August 2020 has been a boom month for questions. If you've got one, please visit akimbo.link. That's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K and click the appropriate button. Hey, Seth, it's Andy from Goshen, Indiana. Sorry if you can hear my son playing drums in the background, but that's just the reality of the world we're living in now. Uh, I got a question. You probably get questions similar to this, maybe in different forms, but how do we balance uh, framing and presenting information in a way that we know will bend the reader or the consumer in a certain direction without um, feeling like we're manipulating them? 
Thanks, Andy. Yes, marketing is super powerful. And if we're not careful, we end up manipulating people. What does that word even mean? Many of the questions this week have to do with what does a word mean? I think manipulation is this. If after someone has interacted with you and they know what you know, they see how things have worked out and they feel like they have made a mistake, that they have done something that helped you but didn't help them, then I think they've been manipulated. And marketing gives us the tools, if we choose, to do the work to manipulate people. The alternative is if people knew what you knew, saw what you see, after they are done engaging with you, they are glad that they did, then you've done something generous. You haven't manipulated them at all. And I think it's our obligation as marketers to do just that to make things better by making better things, not because we get paid to do it, but because the people we do marketing for, as opposed to do marketing to, are glad we did. Hi, Seth. This is Chris from Birmingham, UK. I'd like your take on personal brand versus reputation. In the sector I operate in, which is real estate, uh, everybody talks about it being a people business, but if the trust that is sadly lacking in that sector isn't, is to be redeemed, reputation alone won't work. We trust people like us, but how do we know who is like us? I'd love to hear your thoughts, Seth, and, and thanks really for all the valuable information that you share with the world. Take care. Thanks, Chris. Another question about semantics, personal brand versus reputation. I'm not sure there's that much of a difference or a distinction just different ways of looking at the phrase. What is a brand? A brand is not a logo. Nike's brand is not a swoosh. Nike's brand is the expectation that we have of what the next thing Nike does might be like. You may have heard me say it before, but if Hyatt came out with a brand of sneakers, we'd have no clue what it would be like. But if Nike had a hotel, I think you can visualize what the people working there would be like, how much it would cost, what the rooms would feel like, because they have a brand. It is a promise. It is a set of expectations. So yeah, at some level, it's a reputation. Maybe what we're thinking about is this. Personal reputation is backward looking. Personal reputation is, when I add up what you've done before, what do I know about you? On the other hand, personal brand might be forward looking. What promise do I expect you to make and keep going forward. They're both on the same axis and they're both important. Going forward, you are more than your resume. You are your work. You are the impact your work has made. You are the promises, expectations, shortcuts, and genre that people expect you to be in. And if you don't like that, the best way to change it is by changing how you appear in the world. I am a physical therapist who works with 17 other clinicians. We have a gift that we serve our community with to get people moving in a pain-free way. I love the idea that our smallest viable audience is a group of successful patients and referral sources that have seen good results from our techniques. I love your podcasts and blog, but I don't want to be a blogger or podcaster or an author. How do I connect with my tribe who don't particularly care why our techniques work and don't want to get into the weeds about biomechanics and pain science so that the next time they or one of their friends, family, or patients needs physical therapy, they choose us? 
David, thank you for this question. Again, lots of words here that I want to decode. The first one is this. It's really unlikely that you have a tribe. There are tribes in the world. For example, extreme athletes. Extreme athletes recognize each other as they're walking down the street. Extreme athletes instantly fall into camaraderie, even if they've never met before, because they know what it's like to run a 100-mile run. So that's a tribe. Now, Within a circle of people, you can build a reputation or even a personal brand. There can be word of mouth where people talk about what you do and how you do it. So part of what it means to seek out a smallest viable audience is A, to find a group of people who have similar needs and wants. B, that group of people also has a similar story that they tell themselves about how they're going to satisfy their needs and wants. And C, They talk to each other because when all three are present, you can be specific. You can overwhelm on a certain axis that others don't care enough about, and then the word can spread. So almost nobody cares about the details of biomechanics of one physical therapist versus another. We're not really picking physical therapists based on evidence. We're picking them based on the story we tell ourselves and our peers tell us. One of the biggest challenges a physical therapist has is getting people to even consider physical therapy before they go to the surgeon, before they take pills, before they simply give up. So there's a lot of opportunity simply to promote the profession as a whole to say physical therapy is effective and efficient. But then within that segment, you need people to decide where to go. And they're probably going to decide based on things like convenience, or price, or reputation, or personal brand, or how it makes them feel to talk about it, or how it makes them feel to show up in the office. To go twice means that you're dealing with the receptionist, the timeliness, the play, the way the facility makes you feel, the way your interactions with the physical therapist go, et cetera, et cetera. So you are doing something biomechanically that's making a difference. You're also bringing people a placebo. You're also having them show up on the regular, which all by itself is a good way for people to get better. So when I talk about seeking out the smallest viable audience, what I'm saying is if your slogan is, you could pick anyone and we're anyone, you're not going to do very well. If your slogan is, this is for everyone, you're also not going to do very well. And so built into the fabric of the question you're asking needs to be, we are specific. How do we help our specific audience talk to each other in a way that raises their satisfaction and status because we can't afford to talk to them directly? And so, no, you don't need a podcast and you don't need to write a book, but it could help and it might be fun. The shorter version is, how do you become the center of a circle of people who care? And to wrap us up, not a question, just a comment from Baskar. Again, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Recently, I came with an example where a news reporter, television news reporter, got into the personal professional kit worn by the healthcare professional and realized how hot it was inside and couldn't go to the restroom for 12 hours. So that was empathy empathizing with the PPE kit worn by healthcare professionals. Thank you. This is Bhaskar from India. 
I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.